Thank you for taking time to listen to this week's message from Horizon West Church. You can find even more content, including video archives of this and other past messages at horizonwestchurch.com. And if you're in the Horizon West area, be sure to visit us sometime soon. Now enjoy this podcast from Horizon West Church. morning church you can be seated Uh, thank you for being here with us on a weekend following yet another Florida hurricane on a Labor Day weekend and maybe most importantly on a college football opening weekend and you're here at church so props to you for doing that we're glad that you're here Um, the hurricane wasn't on my mind but the hurricanes were and if you know you know so that's where I'm coming from hey We just sang a song that we said, more than able, you are more than able. And I believe somebody in the room, maybe many people in the room, needed to be reminded of that this morning. Because what you're walking through, there's questions in your mind whether God will come through for you again. And and what I want to remind you is if you've walked with Jesus for a little while, you have a history of God proving that he is more than able. He's more than able in your marriage. He's more than able in your finances. He's more than able with your kids. It doesn't mean the picture always looks exactly the way we would have painted it. But we serve a God who is more than able to come through for us. He's done it for me. He's done it for my family. And he's done it for this church. Did you know that this month we celebrate five years as a church, Horizon West Church? Would you help me celebrate that? In some ways, I can't even believe it's been that long, and in other ways, it feels like it has been a lifetime. Uh, It's been awesome. It's been hard. God's been more than able. I want to let you know that on October the 1st, uh, Sunday morning, we're going to be doing just one service, and it's a service of celebration of five years of God's goodness to our church. We had to pick one or the other, and so I want you to know we picked the 11 o'clock service to happen that Sunday morning. And this room is going to be filled not only with the 930 service folks, but also with our children and our students. And we want everybody in the room so we can tell some of the story of what God has done in five years of faithfulness to Horizon West Church as we look toward a lot more than five years in the future that God is going to continue to do what he has done. So just kind of circle that, save the date. You're going to hear more about it in the coming weeks. 11 o'clock Sunday morning, October 1st, our five-year birthday party. Well, over the last several weeks, we've been asking the question together and seeking to answer the question of what really matters. What really matters? Uh, Earlier this week, I met with a young man and a young woman, a brother and sister, recently lost their father unexpectedly. I said to them, I said, tell me who your dad was. I didn't get the chance to know him. Tell me about your father. And it's incredible how the end of a person's life really brings into focus what really mattered in their life. Because what matters at the end of life is not how many uh, businesses the person started, how many dollars the person made, how many accolades the person got. We realize as we approach the end of life or we lose someone, we realize what really matters in life. And so I want to bring us to a question that's going to kind of center the message this morning. The question is, what if today and every day of your life going forward, you lived for what really matters? 
You had firmly planted in your mind, in your heart, and in your actions that what really matters is what lives beyond you. What really matters is eternal things. John Piper, the pastor and theologian, said, you don't have to know a lot of things to make a lasting difference in the world. But you do have to know the few great things that matter, perhaps just one, and then be willing to live for them and to die for them. The people that make a durable difference in the world are not the people who have been mastered by many things, but those who have been mastered by one great thing. So the question for us today is, what is the one great thing? What is the purpose for which which we were created? Or to put it in the series that we're in, what really matters? I want to invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 if you've got a Bible or Bible app. And join me there. Um, And I want you to know as we turn there that the Bible or the Word of God or Scripture is continuously seeking to answer for us the question of what really matters. Not only what it is, but how to devote our lives to it. It's the reason we have the Bible, and it's also the reason a man named Paul wrote a letter to a church in a place called Corinth to answer the singular question, what really matters and how do I live for it? So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning at verse 14, we're kind of in the midway uh, stream of thought of something Paul is writing to them. And here's what he says. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless is not, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many form one body, For we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? And so what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and also the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and also the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Paul is going to use a metaphor that centers around a meal. This is my real life, uh, you know, day in the life breakfast for Chris Ogden. This is the actual cup of coffee I poured this morning. It is crazy cold, so I will not take a swig. Stale piece of bread with peanut butter on it and a granola bar. And the only thing I can eat without hopefully getting crumbs in my teeth, which is yogurt. Still good. And Paul's going to use eating and also drinking as a metaphor for explaining to the Corinthian believers what really matters as they seek to be holy people. Now, you'll notice in verse 15, Paul uses a strange expression. He says, I speak as to sensible people. The reason that Paul has to say that, by the way, that word sensible could be translated as uh, wise or reflective or thoughtful. He's saying, I'm speaking to people that I think are, are tracking with me because in the first six or seven chapters of the book of Corinthians, he's been speaking to nonsensical people. He's been speaking to people that have lost their minds, so to speak. They, They are not serious about following after Jesus. And Paul says, now I'm speaking to people that I think actually want to live a life that pleases God. I'm speaking to people that I think actually want to finish their race well. And the issue that Paul's going to put on the table, no pun intended, 
is idolatry. You might remember last week, if you were here, I said to you that idolatry is less about what we craft with our hands, it's more about what we crave with our hearts. Which is unfortunate because if all I had to do to get idolatry out of my life was not build statues of stone or wood, a lot of us would be in a good place. But if idolatry is something deeper than that, if biblical idolatry is about what my heart chases after, then I am guilty, as many of you are, of slipping time and time again into idolatry, right? And so he says, flee from idolatry. Soren Kierkegaard says, purity of heart is to will one thing. The, the nature and the problem of idolatry is that it is inherent to idolatry to pursue not one thing, but many things. You might notice that when your perspective gets off of Christ, when your heart gets away from the love of God, what happens is not just one sinful impulse or one sinful attitude or action emerges, but a whole torrent and flood of them, correct? So it's not just that, oh, now I'm struggling with greed, but on the heels of greed comes dishonesty and, and pride and all these other things that seek to capture my heart. Idolatry and the nature of it is to seek after many things. In other words, you don't have to renounce Jesus to be guilty of idolatry. Idolatry happens when I crowd the room of my heart with other so-called gods and Jesus gets lost in the mix. If you were to go to many nations of the world and introduce them to the gospel, the message of Jesus, you might hear them say something like, oh, we, we know Jesus, we believe in Jesus, or even we worship Jesus. The problem is he's among the gods that they worship. He is not the God that they worship. And the gospel is not merely that Jesus is a son of God, that he is able to save. The gospel is that Jesus is the only son of God and the only one who can save. And so Paul's going to bring us back to this idea that if we are practicing idolatry in our hearts, we're hindering the gospel in our lives. This is what Paul's highlighting when he references the Lord's Supper or communion. Verse 17, he says, we all eat of one bread. Another place, he says, we all drink of one cup. Now, for the record, if you're new to Horizon West Church, when we take communion together, we do not all drink from one cup. And I personally am happy that that is the case. But theoretically, metaphorically, what Paul's saying is, look, look, there's only one body of Christ, is there not? There's only one blood of Christ, is there not? And so when we participate in communion, what we're saying is, there's one Jesus who is able to save, there is no other. By the way, the other ordinance or, or community practice that we do together as a church, besides communion, is baptism. And if you've been in a baptism at Horizon West Church, you've seen that when the person gets into the water, there's literally only one thing that they say. They say, my name is, whatever it might be, and they say, Jesus is Lord. Because Lord implies something. Lord means he's at the top and he's not in any competition. There is no one else that I'm choosing to live for. My allegiance fully belongs to him. That would, that's what it means to receive Christ. He is my only savior. He is my only Lord. And in Corinth, the problem was they were taking communion, they were participating in the table of the Lord's Supper, but then they were getting up and going out the door and they were participating, Paul says, in the table of demons. And Paul's clear point here is, you cannot have it both ways. 
You don't get to have Jesus and whatever it is that you're holding on to. It's Jesus alone or it is not Jesus at all. Now, if you've been with us for several weeks, you're going to see some tension that's going to be built into the passage because previously what Paul has established with the Corinthian church is that it doesn't matter what they eat or drink. That, that, they, that, that eating something that's been sacrificed to idols doesn't matter quite simply because those idols don't really exist. So, so don't get hung up on, oh, that person's eating food sacrificed to idols, that person's drinking something that was in, in the temple. Like, what matters is something deeper than that. But here, Paul begins to chastise the Corinthians for doing both, which begs the question, what in the world is Paul doing? As best I can understand, what Paul is doing is he's speaking here to those who are a little newer to the faith, they're a little younger in their spiritual life, they're not yet far enough away from their previous life of idolatry, of paganism, of ritual sacrifices, that when they eat the communion and worship Jesus, then go out the door and eat food sacrificed to idols, for them it is an exercise in idolatry because they can't separate it. Does this make sense? And Paul's saying, What I want is not a watered-down, wishy-washy community of faith. I don't want people who think that they can get a little bit of Jesus over here and a little bit of whatever the heck they want over there. That's not the way the gospel works. Paul is dealing with the reality of where the Corinthians are at this moment. Even while before in Corinthians and later in this very passage, he's going to appoint them to a better ideal. An ideal that looks different than what he's referring to here. So, to summarize this part of the message, the, this all being the case, when we mix faith with faithlessness, that's what the scripture refers to as idolatry. It's again, it's not completely that we have to leave it, it's just we introduce new things to it. You ask the question, well, how do I know if I'm guilty of idolatry? I'm going to give you just a couple of possible things to reflect on that might point to an idolatrous heart. These are things I wrestle with, these are things you may as well. Idolatry says Sunday mornings belong to Jesus, but Saturday night is mine. You still come to church, you still worship, you can still raise your hands. If you separate out what you do at church from the rest of your life, you may be guilty of idolatry. Or here's another one. Idolatry says, I base my beliefs on what the Bible says, but I base my actions on whatever I feel like doing in the moment. You know, I check all the boxes I got all the right theology, but it's really not the driver to my life. I've separated it out and something else has my allegiance when it comes to what I do and how I spend my time and money. This too is idolatry. Idolatry can be anything that competes with your allegiance to Jesus. Paul's going to continue in verse 23. We're going to look at just two verses before we move on to the, the later parts of the passage. Verse 23, Paul writes, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Now, I don't know how it was on here, but maybe in your Bible you see that there's some words in quotes. Did anybody have that? Where it says all things are lawful. Did you see some quote marks? Now, again, I've said this before. The, the, the writer in Greek did not put quote marks. There were like Greek quote marks that he could put on, on the original manuscript. What it tips us off to is that those who edited the Bible later and translated it into English put quote marks around that because of one of two reasons. One, that's usually either a popular saying in the culture that Paul is referencing. 
I'll give you an example of that. Let us eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. That was not Paul's philosophy, but he puts it in quote marks to say, I know many people in your culture think this, but I'm going to tell you something different. When we see the quote marks here, what I believe Paul is doing is he's lifting an expression that came from the letter uh, from the Corinthians. So in other words, they wrote Paul a letter and he's responding. And one of the things they seem to have said in their letter is, hey, Paul, isn't it right that all things are lawful? And Paul is not going to refute the idea, but he's going to correct the perspective. Paul's going to say, yes, all things are lawful. Go ahead. You can believe that. But I'm going to come back with not all things are helpful. Yes, all things are lawful. You have freedom in Christ, but I'm going to make the argument that not all things are beneficial. In other words, there are things that we are legally allowed to do in our spiritual life, but they don't help us be closer to Jesus and they don't build up our brothers and sisters. It's legal. It's just not a good idea. I want to give you an absurd illustration to make this point. I learned this week that in nine states in our country, you can own a brown bear as a pet. It is lawful in those states for you to do so. And yet I'm sure none of you, if you lived in those states, by the way, Florida is not one. Let me just be clear. It's like the one thing that's not legal in Florida that is somewhere else. The one thing. And so, but, but here's the thing. It's legal, but it's not a good idea. It's not practical. Brown bears thrive in cooler conditions, and if you've been outside any time in the last four months, you know these are not cooler conditions. It's not practical. <laughs> oh, did they show the picture? Yeah, it's a good picture, right? It's also expensive. They, they eat up to 90 pounds of food. And by the way, it's really dangerous. It, unless that is photoshopped, and judging by the guy, I'm going to guess that's actually a real picture. It doesn't matter how much you think you've tamed a wild animal, it's still a wild animal. So you go, well, I'm, I'm legally allowed to own a brown bear if I live in that state. And I would come back with, yeah, but it's a dumb thing to do. <laughs> and there are a lot of things in the Bible that are not expressly forbidden. I'm allowed to do this. The Bible doesn't say thou shalt not do this particular action. And I'm going to come back with, you're asking the wrong question. The question for the follower of Jesus is not what is allowed, what can I get away with, what is legal for me. There's a better question to ask. The question, what is helpful to my life with Christ? What is beneficial to my brothers and sisters in Christ? This is what Paul is trying to do with the Corinthians to replace their primary question of legality with the primary issue of love. You might remember that Jesus one time as he was you know, doing his, his teaching and his miracles and his healings and a teacher of the law comes to him and says, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in all of scripture? His teacher of the law is, not surprisingly, centering his life on the law and saying, Jesus, show me which law is most important. Do you remember how Jesus responded? He said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and there is a second law just like it, love your neighbor as yourself. In that moment and in every teaching throughout the New Testament after that, Jesus has re-centered the origin point for the follower of Christ on what does love require of me. This is something Andy Stanley several years ago in a book called Irresistible encouraged the church to come back to. Not this question of what can I do and not do. Not the, the legalistic impulse to, to try to make sure I'm never out of line and I'm always checking the right boxes and it's the wrong approach to life. The right one is what is loving to God and loving to my neighbor. 
No one's beating me over the head if I don't make a priority to be at my children's practices and games as much as possible. And I know in some instances with travel, that's not always possible. But whatever that looks like for you, it's not legally required. You're not going to go to jail. You're not going to be reprimanded by this church. But I am going to ask the question, is your life centered on love for your spouse and your children? Is your, is your life centered on love for the people that you're in church with? Love for your neighbors. The question is not one of law. It is always one of love for the Christian. And with that, Paul is now going to turn his attention to the goal of Christian maturity. Remember, he's already dealt with the reality. These are Corinthian believers who are new enough to their faith. It's kind of like in our context, maybe they can't listen to that song or they can't watch that movie or they've got to cut some people out of their life because they're beginning to pursue holiness. And Paul's going to go from there and say this, beginning at verse 25. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising questions on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience. If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? We're going to need to dive in here to make sure that you know that what Paul's doing is not contradicting what he has previously said, but clarifying it. Because it's kind of like, man, what, what is Paul doing? Even in my preparation this week, it's like, hey, don't eat food sacrificed to idols. That's, that's demonic. But oh, by the way, if somebody foods, you know, serves you, don't, don't worry about it. Just eat it and don't raise questions. So what's Paul doing? Let me get to that in a second. Uh, This right here is the point in the message at 9.30 where I told a joke that went over as poorly as I could have, I never could have imagined. Um, And so we're going to do something a little different. But let me tell you this. Typically when I tell a joke in a message, I intend for it to be a bad joke that everybody rolls their eyes and kind of does the collective groan. This joke was so bad I didn't even get that. I'm like convinced that 90% of the room still doesn't know what I was saying. So, so we're not going to do the joke, but I needed that moment. So what you're going to do on the count of three is you're going to laugh as though I have just told the funniest joke you've ever heard. Can we do that? This is audience participation. So one, two, three. Cool. So guys, we'll just splice that response into the, uh, into the other and we'll, we'll make that happen. Uh, so with that, here's a real cold kind of next because that was the transitional point and I lost it. But what Paul is going to try to do here is try to establish the fact that when we make decisions as followers of Jesus, we have to go beyond thinking of ourselves. And the two groups that he's constantly bringing us back to in the letter to the Corinthians are first younger brothers and sisters in Christ. People who, man, they're brand new Christians and if they saw me doing something like listening to a song that they used to listen to in their sinfulness, or they know that I watch a show that for them led them to really bad places, they're going to go, well, if Chris does it, then I guess it's okay for me to do. But it may not be okay for them to do. And Paul again and again is going to say, even if you have the freedom to do it, if it creates a stumbling block or an issue for a younger brother or sister, don't do it. Paul goes so far as to say for himself, if eating meat is the issue, I'll become a vegan. He doesn't use exact words, but that's basically what he said. I won't ever eat meat again if that causes my brother to stumble. 
What's interesting in this passage is he's not so concerned about the younger brother or sister in Christ. He's already established that. Now he's thinking of our witness before an unbelieving world. Do you notice what what Paul says here? He says, if somebody offers you food and you're in their home, just eat it, just drink it. If they're unbelievers, there's a high likelihood it was sacrificed to idols, but don't ask, just eat. He says, but if they say to you, by the way, this food was sacrificed to idols, then you push that plate back, not because you don't have the freedom, but because the exercise of your freedom might communicate to them, hey, it's okay for me to do the Jesus thing and also eat your idolatrous food. It's no big deal. So, so again, hypothetically, I might be, uh, you know, let's say I'm a mature Corinthian believer. I'm in the home of an unbelieving Corinthian person. They offer me the food. I begin to eat. They say, oh, by the way, it's sacrificed to idols. If I say no big deal, what I mean is idols aren't real. (laughs) This is stone and wood. There is only one creator, and it is God, and this food will nourish my body, and I'm going to give thanks to him and thank you for being hospitable. That's what I mean when I say no big deal. But what that person might hear if I say no big deal is no big deal. I can have it both ways. I can do a little Jesus over here and a little bit of idolatry over here. And so for the sake of their conscience, I may abstain. This means, friends, that I might respond differently based on different environments that I am in. It is not hypocrisy. It's being gospel-centered. So let me give a modern example. If I were to choose with my father-in-law at a baseball game to have a beer and we're there together and neither of us is disposed toward drunkenness, both of us are gospel-loving, spirit-filled believers. I'm not going to look over my shoulder and worry about a legalist taking a picture of a pastor drinking a beer. But if I'm in this, a, a different environment, if I'm in a neighborhood party and I'm being introduced to people that I don't know, and hey, this is Pastor Chris, and there they see me drinking a beer, there's a possibility that they might go, oh, he's one of those pastors. He does the, the church thing, but, but really we can like get into all the things because he doesn't really take it that seriously. Does this make sense, the, the line of thinking that Paul's establishing? And someone's going to say, well, it's hypocritical. Either do it or don't do it. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. Everything you do should be filtered through the lens of is this good for the gospel and is this loving toward other people? Okay? So let's go to the last few verses here. And this is where Paul's going to really drive home the point that he's making about what really matters. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 31 through 33. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. The expression that Paul uses to end this line of thinking is the one I want to underline, highlight, circle, star for you in this moment. Paul says, I'm doing everything I can that people would be saved. The things I eat and drink, I'm filtering through, can this contribute to or can this hinder people from being saved? The ways I spend my time and money, the relationships I build, I'm filtering everything through. Is this, uh, does this have the potential to help people come to know Jesus Or on the flip side, does this have the potential to push people away from Jesus? Because what really matters is the gospel. What really matters is that I believe, that I internalize, and then that I incarnate the good news message of Jesus before a watching world that they 
may be saved. And I love that in the verses, Paul goes even beyond the gospel in what really matters. Because even when it comes to the gospel, we, we got to ask the question, but why does that matter? Why does it matter that people are saved? We go, well, obviously, so they can have abundant life, so they can live better, so they can live for all of eternity in heaven. That is all important, but there's even a greater why than that. Let me bring you back to verse 31. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to what? To the glory of God. What really matters is that God is glorified. And why the gospel matters is because the gospel is the only thing that has the power to turn people into worshipers. To to change hearts of stone into hearts of flesh that can authentically praise and worship the risen Savior Jesus, not just with their mouths, but with their hearts, their lives, and their whole beings. The gospel matters because the gospel reconciles people to God where they can forever glorify him as they were created to do. This is what in Philippians chapter 2, Paul admonishes and encourages the church at Philippi to do. You're going to see it in one version, but I memorized it in another, and here's what it says. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he, Jesus, humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has given him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The gospel matters. That the reconciling, saving mission of Jesus matters because there is a vision in the heart of God for a day in which every person who ever lived will be on their face in glory and worship of Jesus to the glory of the Father. And so here's what I want to invite you to do in this moment. We're not going to call for a a visible or public response, but I am going to ask that you close your eyes for just a moment and get into a posture of prayer, reflection. Paul not only preached that the gospel matters, he practiced it. With every stoning, with every shipwreck, with every arrest, with every beating, with every long sleepless night, with every hunger pain, with every fiber of his being to the day that he died, Paul demonstrated with his life that the gospel matters. And here's what I want to ask you. i bring you back to the question I started with. What if you lived every day of your life for what really matters? Let me follow that with this question. As you're thinking and reflecting, who is in your life, your neighborhood, your workplace, your classroom, your sports team, your kids' team? Who has God providentially positioned in your life that they may be saved? Not just so they can accomplish a task together with you. Not just so that they can be part of some experience you're having. But God has placed you there that they may be saved. And what if you lived every day for that end and that purpose? God in heaven, we acknowledge that for many of us, myself included, 
the distractions of life, the the things that our hearts crave, all, all the baggage that we carry, God, it can dilute and it can distract from the one thing that really matters. Read this week, the Son of Man must be lifted up and that everyone who looks on him will be saved. God, would you turn our hearts and our eyes, our perspective back to Jesus. And God, as we flesh that out imperfectly, stumbling, failing, trying again, God, would you allow for other people to witness and watch and be drawn to you as their Lord and their Savior. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Horizon West Church Podcast. If you were inspired or encouraged by something you heard today, share it with a friend. For more information like our service time, location, and other info, be sure to visit us online at horizonwestchurch.com. Have a great week.